Erickson is here today with us to talk about norms at war. Um, and uh, um, Jennifer is terrific. She, she has a, um, teaches at Boston College. That could be challenging for some people at Notre Dame, as we were discussing before. But uh, um, but we like Jennifer at least, and um, uh, she does she does really interesting work about um, uh, weapons and the arms trade and norms and constraints on kind of bad behavior around the world, and um, and maybe sometimes when those constraints don't work. Um, she published a really interesting book two years ago. Three and three now. Anyway, so her first book came out three years ago. This is her new book project, and um, is in the early stages, uh, trying to understand um, uh, how norms might form and how they might or might not constrain. And I'm really interested to hear about it because her other book, terrific. So, Jennifer. Thank you. So, thank you for being here. This is great turnout, um, and I, um, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I think you have a really great group of people and a great program going. So, this is a wonderful opportunity for me. Uh, I was sitting on the airplane yesterday, thinking like I should probably open my talk with some quip about the BC Notre Dame sports rivalry, um, and then I realized one, I don't know enough about sports to really do that. Um, so, don't hate me I'm from BC, but I don't know enough about BC sports. But also, I know, and with apologies to my BC student in the room, I'm not sure that the football rivalry is really that. Um, great, you, might, you guys might have that down. So don't tell anybody back on campus, please, but um, that might just be the case. Um, that said, um, it's wonderful for us that you're doing wonderful things here with international security because every time Notre Dame says something impressive and great, we can take it to our administration and say, hey, look at what Notre Dame is doing, and they'll sit up and they'll pay a little bit more of attention. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> So today, as I, as, as, as you mentioned, I'm talking about a new project and an emphasis on the new um, that asks the question, why are some weapons accepted in international politics and security and why are others banned? Um, new weapons are often the target of suspicion and controversy um, in international security. Of course, states are often um, loath to give up weapons that might give them military advantages. Um, but at the same time, new weapons can challenge existing military practices. They can upset power hierarchies and existing norms of war, and they can incite political debate. They are often challenged with being too cruel, too destructive, with violating military honor um, and undermining international law. So for example, when the crossbow and the bayonet were introduced um, to the battlefield, both were targeted with military criticism at the time. Um, today, NGOs seek to ban killer robots um, and, and deal with kind of regulatory challenges presented by cyber technology and, and drone warfare. Um, the IR literature tends to focus on explaining weapons bans. So a lot of the literature um, looks at not just about chemical weapons, for example, but also about landmines, cluster munitions, think also uh, potentially about the literature on the nuclear taboo. Um, but more often than not, new weapons are accepted and legitimized. They're not as frequently banned or outlawed. And so I think this suggests a need for a more comparative approach um, across different types of weapons. So today I'm going to deal with this question um, in using the case of submarines and poison gas after World War I. Um, the initial paper was submarines alone, um, but I realized in sort of writing that that the two kind of kept coming up together um, and that understanding one meant maybe also understanding the other one to get enough analytical leverage um, on the question. Um, this, in turn, as Eugene mentioned, is a part of the larger book project, which is set in kind of a larger time frame. 
um, looking also at nuclear weapons after World War II, which is some research I started last year, um, and contemporary questions about cyber warfare, drones, killer robots, research I have yet to do, so I don't have clear answers on this. Um, this project in general stems from my previous work on, on conventional arms export controls, which led me to ask questions about what are the origins um, of weapons norms in international politics, and in part because the people I was interviewing for that project who were working on controlling the conventional arms trade and trying to create kind of international instruments to control um, the conventional arms trade had gone on or had worked in landmine controls, had gone on to work on cluster munitions, um, and were working also on a, a ban at the UN on killer robots and even nuclear weapons. So I was seeing sort of a lot of people working in this area that were trying to sort of use the same strategies to delegitimize weapons across a number of different types of weapons. Um, and in doing this, these experts and activists um, often pointed to the potential for NGOs and public opinion to restrain states' behavior, um, and in particular, restrain their use of weapons and create new regulatory and prohibitionary norms. Um, but I would say this is not a new conversation, and I'm not sure that the conversation in the sort of the actual storyline is as clear cut um, as a lot of these scholars and activists point out. Um, new defense technologies are often introduced with criticism um, and concern, as I've mentioned. And I sort of wanted to understand why do we only see bans in these rare cases, and more often, how do we actually get to the point where new weapons um, are legitimated? So I wanted to start um, by looking at this question in the context um, of World War I. Um, some of the most dominant images we might have in our minds of World War I are soldiers in almost alien-like gas masks meant to protect them from noxious fumes on the battlefield. Um, today, many automatically associate poison gas and chemical warfare with a taboo banned because its effects are indiscriminate um, and inhumane. For many, it is obvious um, that poison gas is banned. If you're like me in high school, you maybe read Wilfred Owen's famous poem describing the horrors of being caught in a gas attack in World War I. Um, with the blood gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, guttering, choking, drowning as under a green sea. Um, images of gas attack victims in some cases today show um, remarkable similarities with radiation burns after a nuclear <coughs> weapons attack, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example. So to pair poison gas with submarines, um, for many, seems a little bit odd. Submarines are a sort of commonplace tool in states' naval arsenals um, today. And so this, might, this comparison might appear strange and out of place. Um, but at the time, submarines and poison gas were often paired together in post-war arms limitations discussions as examples of Germany's destructive and barbaric um, dishonorable war fighting and weapons that, from the perspective of some states, faced public pressure and needed to be banned as too easily targeting civilians and causing unnecessary death. On the submarine side, the sinking of the Lusitania in May 1915 and its aftermath pictured here drew public and political attention in the United States, but Germany's unrestricted submarine warfare in World War I, that is, warfare that was targeting non-military ships, um, even those potentially flying neutral flags, was a fear of publics in Britain um, and other states as well. Um, submarines, like poison gas, were not just seen as breaking international law, but being sneaky and against military codes of honor. Um, one 1917 poem described them as wolf ships waiting in the shadow of the night. Another from 1918 as born in the shops of the devil. And in 1930, the viper of the sea. Popular sentiment against both these weapons um, was extremely strong at the time. Yet today, submarines are common tools of naval warfare. For some, they're even the ultimate weapon um, of naval warfare. It took, say, 60 years for submarines to evolve from sort of a forgotten, sidelined, unimportant um, craft 
into a sort of central element of national security, produced and sold the world over. At the same time, poison gas um, and chemical weapons are banned, considered weapons of mass destruction, and you're a pariah state um, if you use them, if you break them. So my question is sort of how do we get here? And so the central question in the kind of the talk here will focus on understanding why after World War I states banned the use of poison gas, um, but not submarines. And in particular, why do we get strong prohibitionary norms preventing, or in, in theory at least, preventing um, the use of poison gas, but not submarines? And I'm going to argue, and this is a very preliminary argument, so don't hold me to this forever, um, first that state strategic manipulations of laws and norms during the war introduced an articulated ambiguity about the value of the weapons, the legality of the weapons, and the humaneness of the weapons, whipped up public fear and opposition, which had unintended, in some cases, consequences um, for, for campaigns after the war. Nevertheless, I also want to argue that while the legal outcomes look very different in these two cases after the war, we have a, we have a ban against poison gas that's introduced in the mid-1920s. We don't get something like that with, with submarines, so the legal outcomes are quite different. Um, that, in fact, the normative outcomes at the time are not actually that different. In both cases, there are sort of more permissive norms than initially might be expected um, for both, both weapons. And it takes the use and non-use um, in World War II to kind of consolidate these distinct normative pathways in practice for the two weapons. So this is part of a broader book project that asks us questions across kind of time and space with why some new weapons are legitimated and others are banned. And in particular, why states do, in some cases, try to alter international law to fit with new weapons, and in other cases, um, use international law to ban them. The broader kind of big picture IR theory question is trying to understand and explain norm creation in world politics, which I think is something that um, isn't paid enough careful attention to um, in the literature. That it's often hazy on processes of norm creation, um, and often, I think, pays less attention to the role of state interests than it ought to. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in sort of thinking about that. Um, so connected to this, my disclaimer is that I'm in the very early stages of this research. Um, the poison gas case is especially new to me, um, but it also means that it's a really great time for feedback. So this is a good time for questions, it's a good time for ideas. Um, I have a lot of questions that are interesting to me. I'm not necessarily sold on the answers. I'm interested in how states shape kind of international norms and how they're created, um, but I don't necessarily have, you know, I have, I have a set of answers that I'm trying out, but I'm also kind of not wedded to those. So I'm interested to hear what you say, and I think your comments and questions will really help me as I go forward. All right. So new weapons um, start sort of in a place of limbo. It's not really clear how you might be supposed to use them, if there are any specific rules or norms that are attached to them. Um, technically, all new weapons are supposed to fit with international law. So there's an existing body of um, international law about how you conduct war and you know, weapons law. And even if there are no specific agreements or treaties on a weapon, you're supposed to use them in accordance with that, that law. Um, for example, the, the International Court of Justice has said this about nuclear weapons. But in practice, in the absence of an agreement about a weapon, there's unlikely to be sort of um, no kind of a prohibition on them, for example. There's unlikely to be kind of um, regulated behavior. Um, so I think that there are two kind of, once you move from limbo to something else, there are kind of two outcomes that a, a, a weapons norm can find. One is that 
the, the, the weapon can be legitimated. It can be accepted as something that's okay to use and something you can have in your military arsenal, um, which means that there are no regulations. There's nothing specific to, there's nothing that says, you know, here's how you can use tanks specifically, right? Um, or there are some regulations, but still say you can use this, it's okay, it's accepted. Um, and then oftentimes we would therefore see sort of common use of this, this weapon and rare criticisms um, for when, from when the weapon is used. On the other side of the spectrum, we might um, see bans emerge on weapons. Um, as I've said, these are more rare, um, where it's prohibited to use a weapon, um, perhaps in international law or perhaps in international norms. We wouldn't see use very often if you see sort of if you say there's a prohibitionary norm, but then everybody uses the weapon all the time, I don't think you have a prohibitionary norm. Um, but if you see sort of rare uses that are, um, attract criticism, for example, with Syria's use of chemical weapons, um, in its war, we, we might consider there to be a prohibitionary um, norm. So why do these distinctions matter? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a not Chicago MIT person coming in and saying norms a lot, um, and that might make you uncomfortable, but I think um, one, is that these distinctions matter because it legitimates some kinds of wartime activity, even as it de delegitimates others. And that, in turn, I think, shapes states' strategic calculations for how they're thinking about what they want to do and why they want to do it and what kind of costs are they willing to incur if they're going to go against international norms. So it shapes states' calculations and affects kind of the costs and benefits of how they're going to go about fighting, fighting wars. It will influence, in perhaps, too, in, in decisions in future conflicts that can cement those norms. I want to add sort of one important, what I think is an important note on laws and norms, and that is that laws and norms may diverge. Um, I don't want to say that we should typically talk about them as if they are together, that if you see an international law about a weapon, that means that there is also a norm about that weapon. So if states agree to a ban, there is therefore a norm of non-use. Um, the, the norm of non-use would relate more for me to practice than the actual existence of something that's kind of written down on paper. And it's not clear that it's always the case that norms and laws go hand in hand. So we might say today that there's a very clear law and norm about the sort of prohibition on poison gas, um, but that wouldn't necessarily be the case, um, for example, in the 1920s and 1930s where there was a law, but it's not as clear what kind of the norm might actually be in practice. So I want to be clear that there's a, there can be a distinction between laws and norms and we shouldn't necessarily equate or conflate them. So IR scholars, in explaining why weapons, bans, and other restrictions on wartime practices emerge, um, often focus on how norm entrepreneurs sort of frame restrictions to fit with existing laws and norms. Um, but as I said, weapons bans are relatively rare and we kind of need to think um, a little bit more broadly than what these explanations kind of put forward. And when we don't just look at one weapon by itself, but we look at weapons kind of in comparison with, another, with one another, um, for example, poison gas in comparison with submarines rather than isolated on its own, some of the existing explanations that we have become a little less persuasive. So I've sort of grouped them in ways that make sense to me. Um, one, one category of explanations looks at characteristics that are sort of built into the weapons themselves. Um, and I think that there are sort of two strands of this. One is that there's questions about whether the weapon is effective or not. Um, effective weapons are less likely to be banned because states want to use them. Ineffective weapons are likely to be banned because states don't care if they can use them or not. So it's a low cost thing, right? Um, they'll legitimate if they're militarily useful and they'll be willing to ban them if they've been deemed kind of ineffective and not useful. So that's one strand. Um, 
And the other strand is sort of more on the normative side that says there are sort of inherently inhumane or indiscriminate characteristics about weapons that make them subject to being banned. So a lot of people talk about landmines as sort of being inherently indiscriminate and therefore sort of um, open to being banned. The problem with both of these explanations is that effectiveness, inhumaneness, um, and indiscriminateness in some cases might be very open to interpretation and open to manipulation um, by the parties involved um, in, in trying to figure out whether there should be a ban or not. So they're not typically clear cut um, or objective. And in both cases with poison gas and submarines, I'll show that they're debated. Um, they're not something that everybody agrees on and therefore everybody says, well, poison gas was ineffective and therefore we'll ban it, but submarines weren't. In fact, these are both very much up for debate. Second, and kind of connected to this, especially with the effectiveness strand, are great power interests. Great powers will kind of guide or determine what kind of rules and norms are out there and adopted and accepted. Um, and great powers will largely get what they want because they can sort of set the rules for the system. Um, and so I think perhaps great powers care about the effectiveness strand of argument, but I also think that they're, they're concerned about their position and trying to preserve their position in the system. So great powers will be less likely um, to support or promote weapons bans um, for weapons that they care about a lot, um, but they'll be happy to help support weapons bans for weapons they think will upset kind of power hierarchies and challenge the status quo. So weapons that challenge the status quo are more likely to be banned um, than weapons that aren't, um, that sort of uphold the existing kind of um, arrangement of power in the system. Um, and so this is, um, for example, an argument that um, has been made about anti-assassination norms that big, big states kind of didn't find it in their interest for smaller powers or individuals to sort of go out and assassinate their leaders and therefore kind of promoted these anti-assassination norms in the system. With the case of submarines and poison gas, it's, it's a lot more complicated than this though. And submarines are kind of the, the weapon at the time that's seen as the weapon of the week and that would upset sort of the balance in the system, whereas chemical weapons were sort of attached to the great powers more so than, than the other states. Um, third, we see a lot of arguments, particularly in the constructivist literature on domestic pressures in which um, cross-national kind of public pressures and interests will shape what weapons are banned and which ones are not, so sort of societal preferences that are channeled through public institutions. Um, and yet in both cases, both submarines and poison gas, um, we see public pressure to ban, especially in the US and the UK. So kind of across, across the board, um, we see sort of public pressures on the government to, to take up bans. We might also look at lobbying. Um, the chemical weapons lobby, for example, or the, the chemical industry lobby in the US was very much opposed to a ban. Um, but perhaps helped actually bring one about um, against its own interests. Um, and then finally, very briefly, um, there are arguments that say this is about military interests, in particular military bureaucracy and getting money for programs, um, weapons programs and the significant lobby sort of within the government, um, or how the military sort of sees weapons as honorable or dishonorable. Um, in this case, with both weapons, they're seen as sort of dishonorable, sneaky weapons that if you were you know, sort of fighting up front, you wouldn't need to use um, either submarines or poison gas. Um, and in both cases, there are sort of small, nascent programs, um, in some cases, um, for, for chemical weapons within the military itself, separate from kind of um, industrial interests. So all of these um, explanations that are kind of out there come up a little unsatisfying for me when it comes to looking at these two weapons 
um, in comparison. There are pieces of them that I think are useful and should be sort of paid attention to, but at the same time, I don't think they, they get the job done. I don't think that they sort of clearly explain why we get um, submarines sort of being accepted, um, whereas poison gas um, gets banned. In fact, it's a lot of the explanations that are put forward for poison gas, we would expect to see the same thing happen in submarines, and we don't. So here's where things get a lot more preliminary for me. Um, um, so this is kind of what I'm initially thinking uh, um, by way of explanation. Um, and I kind of want to look at how states respond strategically um, to weapons use during war. So how states are using new weapons during war um, on sort of a shorter time horizon. They, they want to be able to use weapons that give them advantages um, and sort of get others to not be able to use weapons that give them disadvantages. And so they seek to manipulate kind of the norms around those weapons during war to provide them with diplomatic cover, for example, to use those weapons, but also to mobilize public opinion to sort of um, have um, enduring, more enduring support for the war over time. Um, such instrumental behavior, I think, is much more viable where these normative environments are kind of weak and unclear um, in, in flux. And I think that's more often the case with new weapons um, than with existing weapons. Um, so in this kind of setting, states can strategically call on existing norms and laws to provide dif diplomatic cover for otherwise questionable behavior that best suits their political and military interests. Um, but that, in turn, I think might have longer-term consequences for how these agreements are sort of made after the war. Um, and so it will shape how the public thinks about it, how other states think about it, and that will have longer-term consequences. So these wartime strategies may have lasting effects and sometimes unexpected effects on post-war policymaking and norm creation. Um, that in part by demonstrating the potential value of new weapons and using them, um, states may kind of introduce ambiguity about their effectiveness um, and their utility. Um, now, many states might discount states' legal um, and normative arguments if they're on the losing side as sort of an uncivilized opponent. But at the same time, these arguments can sow discord among states and make it more difficult for them to sort of agree on how to deal with new weapons um, in question. And without a kind of a shared interest among the great powers and a shared idea um, about what needs to be prohibited or not, such prohibitions are unlikely and new restrictions become you know, legal new restrictions become cheap talk at best and norms become um, undeveloped. So these wartime experiences, I think, may have a role in shaping post-war outcomes in both expected and unexpected ways, um, that they can play a role in strengthening or weakening um, domestic consensus for new rules um, and how we might interpret old rules. It might play a role in informing debates about effectiveness and inhumaneness. It might shape public op opinion and pressures after the war and, and sort of can shape the conditions for norm development over time. This is obviously sort of a very preliminary argument, but it's one that I think might be worth um, developing. All right. So new technologies in general, I think, are useful because new weapons technologies are useful because it's a space where we, we don't necessarily have clear-cut existing laws and norms. It's not clear what's acceptable and what's not, and therefore it's more easily open to debate and manipulation um, and in the case of weapons technologies, often it wasn't clear before a war what they could actually do when they're new weapons, whether they would be effective, whether they would fit with international law. So World War I offers sort of an interesting and important puzzle in its own right um, because it introduces a number of new weapons to the battlefield sort of at the same time. Um, and so we have 
World War I is a case in which several new defense technologies are first introduced to combat. It's not just submarines and poison gas, but it's also the first time we see airplanes in combat. Um, tanks um, come into combat for the first time. We can also talk about it as a time period where we have sort of the first what we might call an aircraft carrier. Um, there's a lot more sort of big artillery that's also happening. So there's a lot happening at the same time period in sort of the same strategic environment um, that allows us to sort of engage in some kind of um, comparative study um, <clears throat> a little more systematically. And a lot of times these weapons are addressed in the same kinds of arms control meetings after the war. And so they're brought up kind of at the same time with the same people talking about them and, and making arguments. So we can sort of look at how this plays out over the war and then the consequences for norm creation after the war. Now I will say that um, I think this group is largely qualitative, so maybe I don't need to say this, but I'm, I'm open to mixed methods. I've done this in the past with other projects, but I think this kind of project for me is best done um, through historical qualitative research. Um, this is at the very early stages, um, but I think this is a way that you can kind of isolate um, these arguments and um, developments in, in international politics, but also look at how these weapons and their arguments are sort of connected over time. And so how things play out with poison gas will later affect how states address nuclear weapons or don't address nuclear weapons, and how the US in particular seeks to sort of distance nuclear radiation um, from kind of effects like poison gas. Um, so there are these links over time that I think you can do with this kind of project as well. Um, I'm going to focus on, as I said, submarines and poison gas for the purposes of this talk, in part because their fates were often tied together in post-war discussions, but they faced very different outcomes. So it's a nice pairing, um, and I think it allows me to test out explanations better by looking at the two of them together. Um, because states debated the inhumanity of both weapons, they debated the effectiveness of both weapons, there was public opinion sort of weighing in on banning both weapons. And so there's sort of an interesting interaction between interests, law, and practice here that kind of putting these together in a case study might provide some interesting insights into state behavior um, after the war. Okay. So, before World War I, there's not a lot of agreement on, you know, there's not even a lot of attention on poison gas and submarines. The rules that are on the table are ambiguous at best, um, and in the case of submarines, they don't really exist at all. Um, and so in the Hague Conventions um, in 1899 and 1907, states bring up um, submarines and they decide in 1899 and they decide well we don't really feel like dealing with this right now and it doesn't seem to really matter anyway these aren't really going to be um, important weapons they're just sort of useful for defense coastal patrols and that's kind of about it um, and so they're not worked into pre-war planning a lot of states aren't really developing them Germany in fact is one of the late submarine developers um, but is the one that sort of becomes able to make submarines more long-range and efficient um, in the lead up to the war but even then, even Germany, which is the one who sort of makes these technological innovations, doesn't think um, of submarines as an offensive weapon or one that it would use um, to be decisive in combat. Um, so the idea for submarines has been around for a long time. It had been around since the 1600s, um, but it hadn't really become usable until World War I, and there really just wasn't a lot of planning or expectations around it. Um, poison gas is brought up in 1899 at the the Hague Conventions, um, but poison, it wasn't poison gas at the time, it was asphyxiating gas. So people talked about poison as something that, you know, a leader is assassinated with, you poison the water supply, but gas wasn't poison gas, it was asphyxiating gas. 
And there was a lot of disagreement at the Hague Conventions about sort of how you would clarify that and what it would be. Um, and people didn't really th it thought about it as a hypothetical weapon. It wasn't developed at the time um, then either. It wasn't even on the original circulator that went around and said, OK, everybody's invited to come to the Hague Conventions. Um, here's what we're going to talk about. Submarines were on that list. Um, poison gas wasn't. Um, and it didn't really have clear status in international law. In the Hague Conventions, there is a piece, um, sort of an, a, one component of it that says you can't use them if the sole purpose is um, um, asphyxiating gas. It's not OK to use it. But it's about sort of the mode of delivery. Um, so you can't, um, so there, there are ways you could use it, and there are ways that you couldn't use it. And everybody who agreed to it said, I agree to it. Everybody else agrees to it, and not everybody agrees to it. So basically, it has really unclear status in international law, and it's not brought up again at the Second Hague Conventions in 1907. So basically, there's no planning around this. In the case of poison gas, it's a hypothetical weapon. It hasn't sort of been developed yet. Um, and similar to submarines, which are out there and exist, but don't really have the capabilities to carry anything off in wartime. So in both cases, we sort of have two weapons that nobody was really planning on using in war, and there aren't clear rules going into the war about how, how they should be used. So they come into the war. Um, not, they're not initially used, or at least not initially used in any offensive way. But Germany sort of breaks them out in both cases when it becomes clear that the war isn't going to be as quick or easy um, as it had originally thought, then it needs to find other ways to, to, to break the stalemate. Um, and so there's a process in both weapons of sort of an, es an escalation with them, um, trying to figure out how to use them and what to do with them and what they might actually be able to do. Um, and so they're tested in the war, um, but they didn't really have kind of pre-war plans. So they're kind of making all this stuff up in some ways as they go along. Um, in the case of poison gas, there's sort of a constant innovation. It starts with tear gas. Um, and it sort of elevates upwards to chlorine gas and other um, more um, destructive um, gas technologies. They're sort of throughout the war innovating with which gas um, can we use now. And a lot of times because you could protect yourself um, against gas. So at the same time that there's innovation in sort of the gases being used, there's also innovation in gas masks and what you can sort of protect your troops from um, um, over time. So there's innovation in the gases themselves, the modes of delivery. Um, and the defenses against them. And it was seen as, uh, over the course of the war as having both psychological and military value, but particularly psychological value, that it really scared um, the troops and they were really frightened of it. And both sides sort of ratcheted up. Um, Germany is the first to break the rules, um, according to some, um, in April 1915. Um, but as Germany points out very specifically in the war, that it did not break the rules that were in the Hague Conventions, that it had not sort of um, used them, it had sort of released them in canisters and not shot them in shells. And so it hadn't actually technically broken the law. And the first one to break the law was the UK, uh, which did do this. Um, both sides have trouble keeping up. They have trouble training the troops. Um, the troops um, need to learn how to protect themselves and when to put on gas masks. And it's not always very successful. Medical teams have a hard time keeping up with these new innovations and not knowing how to diagnose or treat. Um, poison gas. And it also becomes poison over the course of the war. So it starts the war in the Hague Conventions as being asphyxiating gases, but it becomes poison gas um, over the course um, of the war. Um, and so both sides are sort of engaging in this kind of diplomatic cover um, that I talked about, trying to say, no, we didn't break the law. You broke the law. Um, we see this also, to some extent, 
with, with submarines as well. Um, German submarine practices varied between restricted, that is following sort of the rules that are laid out for surface ships and how they should go about um, um, targeting another ship, um, and unrestricted warfare in which they targeted um, non-military ships. And if you're going to target a non-military ship, if you're, if you're a surface ship, the rule says you've got to like notify that you have to surface if you're a submarine. You have to notify the other side. You have to look through the papers of the ship, see what, they're, see what they're carrying, kind of tour around the ship to see if they're carrying any contraband. And if they are and you want to you know, take them down, you have to get everybody on a lifeboat and tow them to the next port. Um, and so there's a lot that you have to do to do this legally. And the German argument became you can't do that with submarines. You can't take, you know, you can leave people floating in the North Sea if you want to, but you can't take everybody on board your submarine and, you know, kind of bring them back to port. It's kind of, there's just not enough room in the submarine to do that. Um, and so Germany sort of goes back and forth between restricted and unrestricted warfare depending on how the war was going um, and whether holding back would appease the Americans and keep them out of the war. The last decision that Germany makes to engage in unrestricted submarine warfare comes because the military estimates that they can get Germany to win the war by sort of starving out the UK before the US would come into the war. So we can do this before the Americans come in. Um, and so the belligerents engage in this sort of extensive diplomatic arguments where they go back and forth about whether sub submarines should abide by existing international law for surface ships um, or whether they were not able to do that. Um, Germany initially argues that it's, uh, it's a reprisal. Their use of submarines is a reprisal against um, the British blockade and that this is their way of sort of um, responding to that. And that's a legal thing to do, that you can have a reprisal. But it also suggests in making a reprisal that maybe what you're doing wasn't the most legal thing. And it's only kind of legal in the context of, of doing it as a reprisal. Later, um, Germany argues that they've chosen a new weapon to do this. It's a new weapon and it can't break the laws because the laws don't apply to it. Um, and therefore, it's been very thoughtful about international law um, and it can't break the law. Internally, there's some agreement with that assessment in both the US and the UK that they have sort of behind the scenes lawyers going, yeah, it's not really clear that we should treat submarines in the same way um, as we should treat surface ships, um, cruiser rules. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of back and forth um, here um, in which both sides try to make the law kind of work in their favor. Um, what becomes sort of interesting here is then is not only these diplomatic responses and this diplomatic back and forth, but also sort of how the public and military respond too. Um, the military responds with more and more innovation and sort of ratcheting up on the side of poison gas. We don't really see the same kind of innovation on the side um, of developing submarine warfare by the British, but we do see the military trying to figure out how to protect itself um, in, um, in both cases. So how do you make a gas mask that works? How do you protect yourself against submarine attacks? Um, so the British uh, came up with sort of decoy ships, Q ships they called them, um, and there were other kind of ways in which they tried to sort of combat against um, um, submarines. So we see that kind of on the military side. Um, we also see governments using cases of these kind of violations to stoke up um, public sentiment and in, in the war effort against the other side. So there's a lot of public outrage that's built up by both governments you know, using propaganda to sort of say, we're civilized, they're uncivilized, we're good, and they're evil. Um, 
And there's also kind of issues with the medical responses too, that sort of in the medical teams not knowing how to deal with this, um, with the military on the ground, makes matters worse, um, with poison gas in particular. And often the treatment um, is incorrect, and it kind of adds to kind of the psychological um, problems associated with, with poison gas. And so and it ends up also kind of feeding into public outrage um, as well. All right. So just briefly on kind of the post-war um, outcomes, just to see where, where things kind of end up. Um, they spend a lot of diplomatic attention talking about both submarines and poison gas in the post-war years, um, debating the weapons and their mode of uses and whether they're effective or inhumane or not. Um, and so there's sort of mixed legal outcomes for um, these two that come out of this. Um, the Washington Naval Conference in 1922 tries to ban both um, and fails. It fails because France just doesn't think you should ban submarines and therefore doesn't sign. And then there's a series of meetings dealing with both poison gas uh, um, and submarines separately um, after that in which it particularly, so you have the Geneva Conference in 1925 where things sort of work out um, for banning poison gas. But with submarines, there's this long kind of drawn out, what are we actually doing here? Um, can we apply these kind of surface ship rules? And there's not a lot of agreement until 1936 when they basically say, well, we should just apply the surface ship rules to submarines um, and that should be the end of it. Um, and that has sort of an ambiguous interpretation. For states that liked submarines, they sort of looked at that and said, great, that means you know, these are rules that we can't apply to submarines, so we're just going to ignore them. We're just going to sort of do what we want because we can't, we can't use them anyway. For states that didn't like submarines like the British, they sort of said, well, this is effectively a ban on submarines because you can't um, actually use these weapons according to these rules. Um, those submarine rules, um, I should say, for, for Jeff Legros and his work, he, he kind of, he, he calls them the most robust institution um, of kind of the, the weapons um, norms that he observes in the book from the interwar years. Uh, but at the time, these norms were seen as extremely weak, ambiguous, um, and impossible to implement in practice. So in, in the case of interwar planning and expectations sort of getting on beyond what the sort of rules were, what the international laws were, everybody was planning on using everything, basically. So they've, they've agreed to these um, agreements, um, but at the same time, they're very weak normative outcomes. In the case of submarines, everybody sort of says, well, we're either going to, we're basically going to ignore the agreements. In the case of poison gas, everybody's worried everybody else will ignore it, and so they all kind of prepare um, for, for conflict as well. Um, um, and in the case, in, in, in World War II, it sort of plays out with, with poison gas not being used perhaps more for deterrence reasons um, than for normative reasons, um, and submarines uh, having unrestricted submarine warfare right away, kind of on all sides. So, in terms of the explanations that are sort of on the table, this big question of did the victors write the rules? Did the great powers get what they wanted? Um, I don't think that they got what they wanted, and I'm not sure that they knew in all cases. The U.S. is very ambiguous about what it wants, like all the time. So, um, in terms of the effectiveness of the weapons, it's debated. Across the board, we have military planners, we have politicians that are debating whether both weapons are effective. We talked at lunch about how it's really hard to know what do we mean by effective anyway, um, but there's a lot of ambiguity from the war that carries over into the post-war discussions about can these weapons achieve what, what they want to achieve? Um, you know, whether or not it's in the military interest to do that is also sort of unclear. So there's a lot of debate about effectiveness and it's not clear that the one that got banned was the one that was ineffective. 
There's also very mixed results for great power preferences in terms of sort of the international system and kind of keeping the status quo. Um, we'll talk about the sort of domestic interests in a moment. Um, submarines, the great powers supported a ban. Great Britain especially wanted it. Its preferences are very clear in that it wants its, to keep its sort of status quo as a great naval power and it doesn't want to be um, sort of interrupted um, by more upstart cheap countries that want to invest in submarines. And it's, the ban is actually blocked by the weaker naval powers, not the strong ones. And they keep coming back to the table. And so we end up with this kind of regulatory compromise that's sort of seen as weak um, and ineffective. Um, on the poison gas side, the great powers have the advantage here. This is not a weapon of the week um, in the interwar years. Um, and they propose a ban. So the great powers might get what they want, but it might not necessarily be so clear why they want that, at least in terms of these kind of status quo um, interests, and others support it. Um, the US is kind of all over the place. Congress approves the first one that's attached to the Washington Naval Treaties, but rejects the second one, and so it's a very divided state. But everybody sort of makes preparations. Um, and so there's a question about whether, you know, maybe this is more kind of a domestic politics story. Or is this sort of a PR move? Um, <clears throat> and it it's, seems that perhaps domestic politics maybe played a role or at least was sort of a justification for some states in doing this. Um, but it was manipulated. Um, and, and particularly in the war, um, there was a lot of propaganda that used both poison gas and submarines to sort of make these points about how these were ineffective um, and inhumane and indiscriminate weapons. And in the case of um, you know, chemical weapons, it was seen as sort of a cruel way to die. It was like drowning. And then there were submarines where you actually were drowning. Um, in the case of submarines, it's also civilians were actually targeted, whereas they were not targeted um, in World War I um, by poison gas, but there was a fear that they would be targeted. And so um, sort of the public story is a, is a little bit subject to manipulation by the states themselves during the war, and that kind of carries over um, post-war. Um, in particular, there's a, a chemical weapons industry in the US campaigning against a ban that perhaps stokes a lot more fear from the public and extends kind of the public interest in having a ban in ways that the chemical in industry in the US did not want. Um, and so there's sort of unexpected um, consequences for this as well. Um, in terms of the sort of legal and normative obligations, all of these um, are sort of up for debate. So it is not clear cut which weapons are inhumane and which ones are humane, which weapons are um, seen as, as indiscriminate or not. So it, the normative and legal precedents, as we've talked about already, are, are ambiguous um, at best. I mean, in terms of excessive harm and cruelty, there's a lot of debate about this. There were people who wrote in the 1920s and 1930s, including in the US, that said gas was a more humane way um, to engage in warfare because you weren't killing anybody. You were just you know, letting, putting them to sleep for a while while you kind of tried to work your way around the battlefield. Um, so there were debates about this. And you know, a lot of times, some of them would come down to, well, it's OK to let somebody drown in water, but it's not OK to let them feel like they're drowning on land. Um, and so they would have these kinds of uh, debates at the time. Um, and in terms of indiscriminateness, both could be used indiscriminately. Submarines were actually, in practice, used indiscriminately. Um, and in the case of poison gas, there was a lot of fear that they would be sort of unleashed on cities, um, but were not actually in practice. Um, so in all these cases, I think we see sort of strategic norm manipulation during war and these arguments about legality and public propaganda and the use of reprisals sort of feeding into um, these debates after the war. Um, 
and whether or not we needed new laws and, and whether or not um, weapons should be banned or not. And I'm, I'm going to try to do this quickly and kind of finish off. But I think it, what it does is sort of establish weak norms for both weapons um, that are more connected to reprisals and whether they could be used sort of in response to other norm violations and law violations rather than sort of saying that they were both kind of outright um, inappropriate to use. Um, but that does come with different expectations for, for future use as well. And I think there's a big question there is why, you know, why is the future use of one poison gas seen as a much bigger deal and much scarier than um, um, submarines? And I think that could be, um, I think there are some potential explanations there. One is that nuclear weapons sort of overtake poison gas as the scariest one. Um, there's fear of perhaps population centers that are attached to poison gas that aren't attached to submarines. Um, so how widespread the damage can be um, to the public. Um, there are concerns perhaps about legacy and, and image that leaders talk about. You don't want to, so you think about sort of post-World War II, you don't want to be the next Hitler. So this is sort of um, a similar thing. You don't want to be the one to start, to be the first one to use poison gas. Um, and perhaps it has something to do with the sort of clarity and existence of international rules and kind of how well you can make poison gas be poison as opposed to submarines are a boat. And so sort of the, the, the weapons analogies that are available um, to the states out there. So finally, a couple of conclusions. Um, one is that I want to point out that both weapons are initially accepted, and they're initially accepted because of state strategic interests and needs. And so I think this is a part that, of the norm story that's often missing. And I don't think I need to tell you, you guys that here, um, but I think it's a point um, worth noting. That initial acceptance is rooted in state strategic needs, and they will go out of their way to try to, to be able to use weapons that they want to use um, in conflict for their strategic advantage. Um, but that has, I think, perhaps long-term consequences um, for how those debates play out um, in the future in ways that I'm sort of still trying to, to work out. Um, second, I think there's an interesting relationship between law and norms that I would like to, to work out a bit more in which law perhaps, perhaps helps norms get along in the long term but isn't necessarily sort of something that goes um, hand in hand. Um, and can, law itself can sort of be a, a, a strategic tool for states um, in trying to, to meet their military interests. And finally, I think I'm curious about sort of implications for current debates on drones and killer robots, um, especially, um, and these kinds of arguments here suggest that um, these weapons are more likely to be accepted components of military arsenals than excluded completely. So bans, to killer, bans on killer robots, I think, will be very difficult for states to put into effect that are interested, but particularly NGOs that are trying to, to kind of push this. Um, that said, without rules kind of trying to address humanitarian consequences, how states calculate their use um, and the costs and benefits of their use of those weapons um, will change. And without rules might be more likely to kind of be dismissed as maybe not very costly after all. And so if there's interest in sort of restraining how states engage in conflict, then there might be some value to having such rules, even if it's not clear sort of how they'll play out in practice. So I'll leave it with Wonderful. that. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> there will be another opportunity. Don't don't use up your clapping. <laughs> I only get one round of clapping. No, nope, no, nope, so. not here. <laughs> um, so the uh, uh, usual deal: uh, raise your hand. I'll make a list and try to call people uh, based on the list. And um, 
I think we have two of these. Somewhere over there? Okay, so the deal is uh, when it's your turn to ask a question, a microphone will somehow get past you. It will appear. Turn the microphone on. Switch. Right? Off. On. Uh, ask your question, and when you're done, turn it off and get ready to pass it to the next person. So, um, uh, all right, Mike is first. Uh, thanks, Jennifer. That was a uh, very interesting uh, presentation. Um, I have some priors in this debate, so. Everybody has priors. Yeah, uh, but I think I've got uh, more than most. <laughs> but I, I'm wondering, you know, given that the, uh, the, the debate, um, you know, generally uh, is waged or historically has been waged between uh, people that have said, look, the pattern of legitimation or delegitimation of weapons uh, is a function of, you know, whether they're effective or not versus some, you know, more uh, <coughs> abstract notion of morality, morality you know, uh, we're, at a, we're both at Catholic University, so, you know, Christian just war theory or Catholic just war theory um, has a, a set of standards that are independent uh, of e efficacy uh, for determining, um, you know, whether uh, a weapons uh, system or a, a strategy or tactic is licit uh, or not. So what you're saying is that both things are going on. Um, and, you know, certainly as part of the process, it, it's undeniable, um, but in a way, it's also unsatisfying because at the end of the day, in, I think, and maybe it's just me, so maybe younger brains less polluted by uh, you know, old debates wouldn't see it this way, but, but it still comes down to uh, you know, whether uh, a, uh, an absolute standard for um, the acceptability or unacceptability will shape uh, states' decisions about what they use, <coughs> or whether uh, it ultimately comes down to uh, whether uh, the weapon systems are useful or not. So, given that, and, and if it, and it, if my discomfort with the ultimate, uh, not the ultimate, but the provisional payoff of your uh, presentation is correct. What can you do to move the debate um, beyond that? Or conversely, uh, if you think saying that sort of both things uh, are part of the process, um, how would you defend that as a, a, a contribution? I don't mean to be provocative, but I guess I, I am be being provocative. provocative. <laughs> you have a reputation, you know, in which you mean to be provocative. So um, I expect no less. Um, I, so do I, I, you don't collect, I, I answer, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just hold on to it till we find out who's asked. You know? <laughs> um, so I think this is, this is a core question. Um, and I, I, I think that there isn't a problem saying both are true. And that if our goal is to explain international politics and ask sort of big interesting questions about international politics, then don't we want to get answers that reflect international politics. And so, 
you know, if the answer is both, then we should say that it's both. And if it's not sort of an either-or thing, or that both of those components of the either-or thing, I think themselves are subject to debate. And so I think there's maybe two places where I can make some payoff with that. Um, one is to maybe try to bridge that debate. And I maybe come from a, a younger set of minds where we're, we're uncomfortable choosing such, such rigid sides. Um, I believe about millennials. I'm not a millennial. <laughs> so. Or Generation X, I think that's, are we Generation X? Why? Uh, why? I don't know. Nobody knows. We don't even yeah, know. Yeah. We exactly. defy categorization. There you go. Oh, then I'm not even. A, yeah, I'm not a millennial. So, um, <laughs> but I, I think I, I would like to make better explanations of international politics. And if I think the evidence reflects that both things are going on, then I think it's worth saying both things are going on and trying to figure out how they affect each other. Um, so that's one point, and I, I, I think that might be happening here. Um, the other is that I, I don't think either, either of those explanations are so solid and rooted in something concrete as the two sides seem to think that they are. And so I think that that function of effectiveness, it's very appealing, um, but I think it was also sort of a weapon in the debate itself about whether or not you should ban them. And if you say, well, look, everybody, they're ineffective, and this was made with with landmines and cluster munitions, too. We can ban them because we now see them as ineffective. But they weren't always seen as ineffective. And the US doesn't always see them as ineffective, right? And so it's, it's subject to manipulation. And we should maybe be able to understand where that comes from and how that plays out in international politics. And I think the same is true of the morality question, that these are, that there isn't sort of a clear, maybe there's a clear standard of morality that we should kill people in certain ways and not in other ways. Um, which is sort of a weird, uncomfortable thing, too, I think. But it, how these weapons fit into that morality, I think, is also open for debate and was a subject of debate. And so we should sort of unpack that, I think, a little bit and understand how those two interact and play out to create you know, different outcomes in international politics. So I think that both there's, there's the potential to say, look, it's both. The international world is complicated. and does one way more than the other? It might depend on the state that we're talking about. And so what argument plays out well in, in maybe the UK might be a, a different argument playing out um, in France. I don't know. Um, but I also, I, I think that neither effectiveness nor morality are clear cut and established and are actually wielded as political tools in this debate. And if we can't see that, then I don't know that we have a good understanding um, of the debate itself. Can I just make one suggestion? I wonder if looking especially at poison gas is not a good case. The problem with poison gas, pardon the pun, is the battle lines on that one have hardened. Yeah. Um, if you were to think about other weapons technology um, besides the, you know, the sort of usual suspects. I wonder if you might uh, get a little bit more uh, traction in terms of, uh, of the argument yeah. um, that you're, uh, you're trying to make. I mean, Maybe, you know, strategic bombing yeah. um, is an interesting one, because mm -hmm. I think there the effectiveness argument uh, is genuinely more open. In mm -hmm. um, strategic bombing, particularly uh, the way the British uh, practiced it in, uh, against Germany and the way we practiced it against the Japanese 
was uh, clearly uh, in violation of uh, generally accepted norms mm -hmm. of uh, non-combatant immunity. Um, so it might be, you know, if you if you got into uh, different weapon systems than the ones that have sort of been the, the focus of this debate, you might have, uh, it might be a more yeah. productive discussion. I mean, that's why I wanted to do submarines, and I didn't initially want to do poison gas. So I had sort of avoided, I had written the paper on submarines, but I also came to do poison gas in part because the battle lines are so hard, and, and I think that means that I might be a little crazy to do it because it means I have to come up against people's priors, right? I have to sort of say, well, you should maybe rethink your explanations here. Um, and that might be a losing battle in some ways. But I, I also think there's value in doing it if, if we're sort of saying, look, maybe the explanations we have aren't very good. And so maybe if I add more in, but I don't, I'm reluctant to take it out because I'm not sure we're understanding it. Like by looking at poison gas in isolation, I think we're missing out on sort of maybe maybe these explanations aren't really very very useful, and we should we should call that into question. So, um, I agree with you on the one hand because I think we should be pay, paying attention to more things and having that sort of intellectual space to play with it a little bit more without those priors, you can maybe get more done. But I also think that there might be value in sort of saying if we're not right about it, we should we should talk about that. So that might be. Might be good that I have tenure for that at least. But thank you. Um, just to uh, thank you for the presentation. Now, just to kind of build on exactly what Mike just said about uh, strategic bombing. Um, when you put up uh, just first, um, when you put up the, the the kind of I guess the four by four of, mm -hmm. with all the you know the tanks and the airplanes in addition to submarines and poison gas. Um, and as soon as you see that, it's just, and you start talking about what the people are actually talking about with the Washington Treaty, I think you have to engage that, because it's very odd to have uh, these debates going on in the 20s and 30s, I guess, about how can we um, ban poison gas and submarines and unrestricted submarine warfare, when at the same time, the chief, this is like the chief period where air power uh, strategists are coming up with, you know, Duhay and Hap Arnold are coming up with, we need to do the strategic, this is where it's how, it's, it's a very odd tension that mm -hmm. in some areas this technology is being banned because of they're doing what air power says can do better. So there's this odd tension there. I yeah. think that you have to kind of, I'd just be interested to see what's going on there. Is it just they're not talking to each other? Um, second, I guess, um, on your theoretical, the main, I guess, point I had, uh, I'd be curious if there's an interaction actually going on, um, not just with effectiveness of the technology, but how many different tactical uses there are for the technology. So for poison gas, at least, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not very creative, but there's not very many things I can think of to do with it besides either using as a denial uh, attack or basically poisoning and killing people. Whereas the submarines, you can kind of get rid of unrestricted submarine warfare, but you can keep the underlying technology and kind of try to construct a norm around maybe we shouldn't do this type of submarine warfare, but keep the technology. So then you're getting into a different uh, debate about strategy and tactics versus the actual technology itself. And maybe that's why airplanes and submarines um, don't get banned, because there are these other ways you can kind of attack getting rid of the unrestricted warfare. So that's different from the technology. Um, and then I guess the final point, just on a broader, uh, there's not really probably an answer for this, but uh, maybe to help with the book project. Um, I'd be curious maybe as a way to get to kind of breaking between these two hardened lines. Um, are there any weapons technologies that there were norms against use that have actually broken down? Um, and now I'd be a way to see what's changed and actually seeing uh, so now that this has changed, what was actually driving that norm against it in the first place? And then we can kind of backtrack. 
um, maybe in the future, um, you know, there is this kind of norm against weapons in space, and it mm -hmm. seems like there's some development going on there. I don't know if that's actually going to break down or not, but it might be something to kind of think about. Do you have other ones you can think of? That was the f sure. You would probably know more than I would, but yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, it's a good point. There are old ones. Yeah, old ones that like oh, well, we have one. The longbow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a really old one, but it's a norm that existed and then that came apart. Yeah. So. That's basically all the point. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did start kind of doing the air power reading, and, and I was doing a lot of reading on it. And they, they do sit down and talk about kind of, well, what should we do? And here's a set of rules that they never actually kind of formally adopt. Um, and I think the fear was the same as the fear with poison gas, and in part connected to poison gas, because they think, well, maybe you can just dump the gas from the airplanes, uh, or balloons, if you wish, um, onto, the, onto civilian population centers, basically. Um, and I think maybe there's a part of it that, and I don't know nearly as much about sort of that conversation, um, but it was very clear that the commercial uses of airplanes, like the potential commercial uses, were so important to everybody that they just couldn't agree. Um, and that's not really the conversations that came up with submarines or poison gas. So it, it is that sort of dual use that really plays out with the, the airplane um, case. And maybe they also thought that if you ban the poison gas, you don't have to worry about it being dumped from the airplane. Um, but they also, you know, there was this idea that you could drop bombs from airplanes that was still there and, and questioned as like a, you know, it's about the indiscriminateness of the, of the technology in some sense. Um, I think so, so your point about sort of the number of tactical effects is more about can you use the weapon in ways that are acceptable or not? Like are there alternative uses for it? Whereas you could in theory use a submarine in a way, but I think that it still runs into that debate about poison gas, about whether it was, like whether it should be considered acceptable or not. Because there were certainly people who thought that it was just, you know, another thing that you're exploding from a shell. And so what makes that any different than anything? else, and yet people clearly thought it was something different. So is there something inherent about poison gas that, that sort of leads them to think that? Um, but I think, I think that question runs into the sort of like, why did they treat this one different, differently? Um, but it's a, it's a good question, yeah. Um, dual use being less likely because there's just more people who want it around. It's a different, it's like a twist on the effectiveness question. Yeah. The dual use thing, I just, I'll just interpose for a second. It's strange that, that uh, um, in the, um, I remember this, uh, I think it's a New York Review of Books article from a couple years ago, something like that, about Syria and chemical weapons, right? And it's making precisely the point that chlorine is being used as a chemical weapon to kill people, but chlorine also is essential for water treatment. The same darn stuff, produced the same way, huge dual use, and more people are dying because they don't have access to chlorine for water treatment than from any of the possible gas attacks. But there's just, you know, trying to draw the distinction between airplanes and chems based on the dual use thing, I think, I think you just can't yeah, do it. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. You're using the chemicals for like, yeah, everything. <laughs> Less so at the time, I think, but you know, still, yeah, yeah it's definitely dual use. Right. Okay, is this working? Okay. Um, so I really enjoyed your presentation, and I think you did a great job of debunking um, potential explanations, right? Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really good because it makes it a more intriguing question. Um, I'm going to sort of depart from my colleagues um, in terms of recommendations. I think, you just, I think you should steer clear of air power because it's a strategy, not a weapon. Um, and it's so overdone. Like, I feel like I've heard way too much about air power over the years, and I'd like to learn more about the gas thing. Um, I'd also say the hardened norms thing is good for you. I mean, that's just a different, that's a different outcome on your dependent variable, right? It's that the norm actually crystallized versus the norm was weak or there was no norm or whatever. So I think that's not so much a problem. Um, you know, my question for you, which I think is your question for yourself, is, you know, what's the, what's the causal mechanism, right? Like, what's, what's causing these changes? And where I thought <coughs> you were going um, that was really interesting, um, and I hope you go uh, if the evidence is there, um, is this idea that countries during wartime might be whipping up popular sentiment against certain weapons that are hurting them, or perhaps for certain weapons that are useful to them. Um, and that somehow gets congealed and comes back later after the war to hurt them when they want to continue using those weapons, but then it goes against <coughs> what they had said during the war. Um, and that sort of led me to the question of what's the role of war in the story? Um, and whether or not that ends up being an explanation that you sort of go for, um, does it matter? <coughs> do norms arise during peacetime? Do they have, does it have to go through wartime for a norm to arise, right? Where it is used for whatever diplomatic cover or it's fed to the masses or what have you to demonize the enemy. Um, and just sort of more generally, you know, does the, does the weapon have to be invented during the war? It doesn't seem like it, because the subs were before, but da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, that's my question. Yeah, these are really interesting. So I, I think that part of the story is, is about whipping up public sentiment. I, I think that's part of the story, but, it's, but there's public sentiment in both cases, and I think there's an ability in the poison gas case to, to sustain that public sentiment for a lot longer um, than happens in the, in the submarine case, for whatever reason, because it's in public, like the public wasn't targeted in the case of poison gas. So it's not like they're drawing from some like, you know, personal experience or anything like that. Or, I, you know, if you had a family member, it was because they were in, it was because they were in, in the, on the battlefield. It wasn't because they were just trying to cross the Atlantic. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if it's something about kind of the public imagination. There's certainly a story in the US specifically about the chemical industry trying to sort of say, everybody, you should be afraid of this, and therefore, you know, we should prepare for it, and that's sort of backfiring on the industry. So they put, industry puts a lot of money into campaigning against a ban, which makes the public more afraid, and the public sort of has this sort of enduring pressure on, on, on the US government. I don't think that's true across all of the cases. Um, and so I'm not sure what makes it, it it's sort of a different, um, role of the public in one case um, than the other. Um, and, and I think, I've, I'm not sure about answers to this, the question about the role of the war in the story. I think weapons maybe need to be tested out in some way um, to see what they can do. Um, clearly, you don't have to uh, invent the weapon during wartime. Um, but maybe you need that to sort of figure out what's what it can do, whether it might be effective or not, whether, there, whether it can follow rules or not, whether, um, whether it's worth paying any attention to or not even. And it's, you know, maybe doing another case like tanks instead of air power, for example, might, might, 
provide some insight. I'm not, I'm less certain tanks provide as much insight because you don't sort of tap into the public side um, as much, but. Um, Just real quick, yeah. is, there, is there a norm that applies to a weapon that hasn't been used in war? Like, is that even possible? Or is it just like it's too new? How do you define wars too? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I think there has to be something about the, the practice itself. And you can make bans on weapons that haven't been used and haven't been invented, which was the case in 1899 with asphyxiating gases. Um, and so the, the idea at that point was like, well, it's, it's, it's such an imaginary thing, or it doesn't seem feasible. Who cares? It doesn't matter. And so we can ban it because it, it plays no role in our military planning. We've invested no money in it. It doesn't matter. And maybe submarines weren't, were a little bit beyond that, but they also were sort of like, these aren't going to matter. So I, I think it's easier to ban a weapon that hasn't been used. But I also think that states are reluctant to ban weapons that they see might have potential for them. They don't want to cut off the possibility of, of using it before they've even sort of gotten there. And so I think they're much more likely to happen sort of after the fact, or at least in, in practice. Landmines took a long time. Cluster munitions took a long time. Um, Poison gases to us faster. Nuclear weapons just sort of sit there and throw a wrench in everything. Um, um, so, yeah, I have to. Th these are good questions to, to think about and really help me think about it, though. So, thank you. Do you, or do you want to get past? Yes. Okay. We're going to come back to you. <laughs> uh, you're up, Mr. Lindley. Dan. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, if there's some. Uh, a general theory that you've generated, and it's a pessimistic one, <laughs> that uh, first of all, great powers are the ones who develop new weapons generally. Therefore, if great powers have an interest, uh, there's not going to be a norm. They're the ones who developed it. So it's just a general rule. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it doesn't apply in all cases. But as a general rule, it seems like you you could make a very pessimistic overall prediction or observation. Mm -hmm. Now I want to speculate a little bit about applying the Erickson rule uh, to contemporary weapons, and how does this play out? So just thinking about drones, autonomous weapons, cyber, and space. Somebody brought up space. So you know, the US is obviously drone central headquarters. We're not going to give them up. They work well. Uh, so no norm would be the Ericsson prediction, I would say. Uh, autonomous weapons, we're not quite there yet. But I suspect we're going to dominate. And when we do, we're going to use them because they're going to save our lives, if not other people's. So I think no norm for them. Cyber is a little bit interesting, because I don't think we figured out really how to do it, or if we're doing no. it, it's in secret, <laughs> and we don't. Yeah. So I think that's a potential. It's also very widespread, right? Yeah. It's not just a great power thing necessarily. Right. So it's spread. You know, North Korea can do mm -hmm. it. So it's that wrinkle of it's not necessarily the weapon of the powerful yeah. definitely applies to cyber. And then space is interesting because we rely on it, but not for offensive reasons, but just we, we need the infrastructure, and it's a vulnerable infrastructure. And therefore, there might be a norm developing or has developed or would develop uh, against militarization of space. And that makes me think about what a key variable could be, which is perceived offense dominance. Mm -hmm. right? And you don't want to get into hairy definitions of what is offensive or not. Yeah. I've been but teaching that in my grad seminar lately, and I'm really like, That explains yeah. the run on aspirin in your general yes. scenario. Um, <laughs> So, but perceptions of offense dominance allows you to escape the definitional question. If it's perceived to be something that is good for the offense, maybe we're more in favor of it or not. And I didn't hear you even 
mention offense defense questions and maybe that's something you could at least give some thought to so just some two or three cents right there so this might be interesting except that it doesn't help with the actual question for this talk because the great powers so if great powers generate the new weapons they're not generating the submarines and they are generating the poison gas in this particular case so it flips it on its head a little bit in that it's the weaker powers that are sort of saying we can't invest in that great naval arms race that all these other, you know, the, 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 the British and the Germans are engaging in and we can use submarines to sort of sidestep that. Um, and making the argument in the process that they're excellent defensive sort of coastal patrol kind of weapons. They don't have offensive capabilities, but they can be defensive and therefore they shouldn't be banned. But it was the weaker sort of powers that said that. Um, and so you get the norms developing around the chemical weapons which were developed by the great powers and not the sort of weaker naval powers. So I think it generates some, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure it lines up with these cases actually. So I can't use the Erickson rule on the Erickson presentation. Yeah. I'm just not sure I'm buying the stuff about the submarines. You said it took 60 years for them to become mainstream. It seems to me it took them about 20 years to become mainstream when they were mainstream in World War I. So I just wonder if there was a norm at all they became sort of, for Germany, as an offensive weapon in World War I, nobody else really used them that way. Um, Germany had sort of the, the engines that could make it possible. The British didn't even think that German submarines could reach Scapa Flow. Like, they didn't think they had that kind of range because British submarines didn't have that kind of range. And so they only really solved some of the problems with sort of stability and navigation and um, kind of the long-range capabilities sort of right before the war. Um, but it was really just the, the Germans that, that did that. And they were seen as this very hated um, craft in the process. So it well, was I, mean, I would call them a great power. And I would yeah. also say that this probably manipulated hatred to get America into the war. Right. So I don't call them an evil weapon. I mean, they were, yes. Um, or, so basically your type, type of argument. But Germany's situation. not at the table when they're making these agreements in 1922. Like, Germany doesn't get a say and sort of, should we ban these or not? So if it's the great powers who are left at the table in 1922, it's not Germany. Well, I would call it a paper norm, but we can... Yeah, we can debate that, that later. But I, I'm not sure that this, this applies well to these cases. Well, then I'm wrong. That's fine. That's twice today already, I think. No. <laughs> but I think it might it's apply in other cases. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no. Griffin, do you want or no? I was just going to ask for the spitball on the future. Well, so <laughs> what, send, Rose, send that to Griffin. Dan, send that one to me. And others who want to get on the list, you are most welcome. There's 13 more minutes. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I was essentially going to ask the same thing, just uh, especially with the dual use side of things uh, for both artificial intelligence um, and specifically like lethal autonomous systems. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what do you think we're looking at going forward? Um, yeah, a little more limited than the cyberspace. You know, yeah. Everything. Yeah, in the kitchen. Everything. Um, so the future of is never really a great topic for a political scientist to take on because we're usually pretty bad at the future of anything. <laughs> Everything? Everyone. Everybody is, yeah. I took part in this forecasting tournament that, the, uh, that IARPA ran, and that was really interesting, but they asked really kind of short-term questions, and that I was comfortable with, but the long-term ones are really uncomfortable. So look, all the, 
all the so I know a lot of activisty types from doing previous research, um, and they are all really confident about the ability to ban killer robots. I am not so confident about the ability to ban killer robots because I think states will see them as potentially useful in saving lives and their own soldiers' lives, right? And they would like to do that. And, and it's also, in that case, I think, not clear what the, the normative um, problem is, actually. I think they see it as something that's new and dangerous, but it's not clear that it's the same thing about inhumaneness or indiscriminateness. Um, if the argument is that you should ban weapons that are inhumane, what's inhuman, inhumane about a killer robot? If it's programmed in the right way, it should do the same thing that other weapons would do. Um, and if it's programmed in the right way, then it would be potentially even more discriminate um, than a human being who is more subject to error. And so it's not clear that that argument applies easily. So for all the sort of we want to ban this, it's not, the, the argument tends to be more about sort of the, who's responsible in the decision-making chain and where you attribute responsibility um, rather than as in all these other cases where the arguments have really been about indiscriminateness and inhumaneness. And so it's a different kind of legal conversation um, that doesn't have a lot of precedent, I don't think, in international law, and so it raises a lot of questions. There's no, I mean, you talk about sort of a new weapon, and can you, you know, what's the, the there is no normative precedent in some ways for this. But I think it, it's more open to a potential intervention by states that want them because they could potentially be more discriminant, and who doesn't want that if you're targeting at least people, like, as you should be targeting people and mm -hmm. not otherwise. So I, I don't think they'll be banned. I really just, I don't see that happening. But um, I think it's a very different case also. Uh, all right. That's well, are you on the Ji Young wants in. So <laughs> I, I will defer to Ji Young. Thank you for a really, really interesting uh, presentation. Um, the one question that I have is, so by whom um, these weapons are accepted or banned? Um, so it seems like in your um, story about poison gas and submarines, those countries were, um, <coughs> were actually great powers. So especially in the case of poison gas, I believe that um, during the World War II, Japan actually used it um, in its war. But Japan was not part of the agreement after the after the first world <coughs> world war, um, I guess. Um, so, if it's only um, so, if the the status these weapons are determined by like some countries, I feel like like a norm diffusion uh, should be part of your story too, because this status of, of weapons are determined by some countries, and then after that, it should be accepted by other countries across the world as well. So um, that was my first question. And then the, the second point that I want to make is, so I mean, this public reaction is really interesting causal mechanism, but I'm wondering if you start to look at um, public reaction, regime types should uh, come in in this process as well. <coughs> I mean, that doesn't probably create a huge problem if you only look at this poison gas and then submarines, but if you also want to look at nuclear weapons, then it makes sense for the U.S. to look at, um, for the U.S. case to look at public reaction, but for 
other uh, countries who have nuclear weapons, especially like Russia or China, it's hard to, I think, um, look at the role of strategic non-manipulation or because they didn't use nuclear weapons during the war and also they are like autocratic regimes which are not affected hugely by domestic opinion about the use of particular weapons. So those are probably the things that you want to consider. Thank you. Um, so I, I, I'm trying to remember if Japan was part of the, the, the Geneva Convention, um, the Geneva Conference in 1925. It was part of the submarine conversations, um, although the, the sort of constellation of states that sort of came in and out as they had these successive meetings, I think Japan was not in the, 19, the last meeting um, about submarines. And I'm, I just, I would have to check on the poison on the poison gas case, but I would also say Japan was a great power, and so, like you know, it was it was a part of conversations. Um, in the Hague Conventions, I mean, they had sort of a broader range of states um, that were participating, and so each each conference has sort of a different constellation of states. But I think it's the great powers because they're the ones that have the weapons um, that become a little bit more more relevant. And I generally think that you know having weapons bans created by states that don't have the weapons doesn't say very much um, about the weapons bans. Um, so um, I, I would have to look into to the role of Japan more. I think Japan's really interesting on the case of submarines, though, because I think it's different. It doesn't, I think it's the one state that doesn't use unrestricted submarine warfare in World War II. But I also have to check on that, because I remember reading that a while ago. So I, I think it's kind of different, but it's involved in the conversations. Um, the public reaction is an interesting causal mechanism. Um, I think um, in the case of nuclear weapons, I've, I've been sort of, I've been reading about sort of the role of public opinion in nuclear non-use, um, and I, I've been largely doing that in the context of the U.S., um, but it's not clear even in the context of the U.S. democracy as a regime type whether the U.S. isn't in using nuclear weapons because of domestic public opinion, or if it's not using them in part, or one of the one of the sort of laundry list of things that it's not using nuclear weapons is because of its concern about international public opinion, in the context of the Cold War, and in particular worried about if if we use nuclear weapons, we will be seen in a particular way by states that we want to have be our allies, and we will look bad. And in particular, if we use it in Korea or if we use it in Vietnam, we won't just look bad, but we'll look racist because we'll have only used nuclear weapons against Asian countries, and that will drive away Asian countries from our sort of coalition of, of states. And so I think there's a, um, there's a calculation about domestic opinion, but it, or public opinion, but it might be slightly different um, in the case of, of nuclear weapons, um, even with the US. Um, I'm not sure about sort of, I, uh, about Russia and nuclear non-use. Um, I'm not sure if it thinks about it in the same way, and if it, it also has concerns about driving away potential allies in, in sort of the context of the Cold War. So I, I can't speak to it, but it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting I idea. I think the domestic structure is obviously quite different, but in some cases, um, you know, Va Matt Evangelista's work on scientists in the Cold War suggests that if scientists do have access in Russia at certain points, they have more influence than the public does in the US on restraining um, or at least encouraging Russia to participate in, in arms control talks. So it, there, is, there is a potential for sort of um, voices outside the government in influencing it, just they have fewer access points um, and it, it might be certain voices and not others that are heard. So, thanks. Okay, so I'll ask a question. Um, 
because I have no one left to defer to right now. You guys are, uh, oh, I do, excellent. Uh, Liam. Hi, should I wait for a microphone? Yes, you should. It's the norm. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> the norm is the rule. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, how much of a norm is dependent on uh, the the number of countries or like the widespread uh, ability of countries to to manufacture or like use the weapon? For example, if uh, if the U.S. should hypothetically develop invisibility, and <laughs> let's say, it's, yeah, uh, hypothetical. And, you know, every other state is, you know, obviously terrorized and they don't want the U.S. to use this at all. It's sneaky. It goes against military honor. Right. Uh, then how what, would they have, are, are there any examples of a country having, like, a, only one country possessing the technology and yet still being inhibited from using it by other states? I mean, there's a period of time where you could argue that about U.S. nuclear weapons. Right. right before Russia gets them, first tests them in, what, in 1949 or 48, I forget. So, I mean, you could also make that argument potentially about Germany and, and offensive submarine use. It was the only country that sort of had submarine capabilities that could do that and was, in fact, sort of invisibility, right? You've got them sneaking up under you underwater. Um, and so I think that's, they're not inhibited. They're not inhibited. <laughs> Um, for sure, but there's also no reason that they should be inhibited. Why should there be a norm when nobody, it's not, not existed before? There's no sort of accepted practice because this is, you're inventing the practice as it comes. And so I think it's kind of, it's this ambiguous area where norms might, might come out of, and we don't know what those will necessarily be. Um, and that's kind of, kind of the place where I'm, I think is really interesting to kind of look where those norms might come from. Um, and there is a big question sort of in the, in the norms literature about how many, norm, how many countries do you have to have buy into a norm in order to make it be a norm? And that can be a sort of a question of number, or it can be a question of what are the, who are the critical states? And if there's just one country that has them, I would say that's the critical state, but nothing's going to happen with that country. They can kind of do, I think, whatever they want. And I think this is a really interesting question. If you want to talk about the nuclear ban treaty that's out there now, it's signed by a bunch of countries that don't have nuclear weapons. Um, and there's an argument that those proponents of the treaty make that say, this will establish a norm against the possession, use, stockpiling, testing, et cetera, of nuclear weapons. But to that I say, if you haven't had to, if nobody gives it up, nobody has to do anything to implement it, then you don't really have a norm. You have a nice treaty, um, but you haven't created a norm. Um, and when Anna Weichselbraun comes next week, or whenever, two, two weeks, She'll have a very different view of that. I think she sees that in a much more sort of optimistic norm-setting kind of way that, than I see it. So you can, you can kind of have that debate if you want. But to me, that means you know, if nobody has to do anything, you haven't created a norm if the critical states aren't involved. Thank you. OK, so um, I can talk loud. So um, uh, we had terrific questions, and we got good, thorough answers to them. I think Liam ended us on a, on a really Terrific question, actually, because um, we're going to talk about this more at dinner. Um, uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, if you will um, join me in thanking Jennifer for a really If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.org nd.edu forward slash 
NDISC forward slash. Or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.